Hello there. My name is Fernanda Moura. I am a literary scholar, founder of Books and Culture, and this is episode 29 of the podcast, An Overview of English Literature. This episode is a continuation of the guided reading of Jane Austen's first published book, Sense and Sensibility. But before we start, I'd like to tell you about an online literature course at Books and Culture that is perfect for you, Jane Austen lover, called the Jane Austen Club. It is a four-module asynchronous online course, so you can follow it at your own pace. In the 14 lessons, you will learn more about Jane's private life, her relationship with her family, the Regency era, her early works, published novels, unfinished works, women writers in the 19th century, the critical reception of her work, the Jane Austen cult, and much, much more. You can register for the course via the website booksandculture.club and start your Austinian journey right away. Furthermore, on Friday, May 26, at 12 o'clock p.m. Central European Summertime, I will host a free online masterclass called Pastimes in Jane Austen's Era. Do you want to know what people did for fun in Regency England? What activities did Jane Austen and her characters do to pass the time? You can find the link to sign up for free on my Instagram account at books.end.culture. Or you can send me a message via email at hello at booksandculture.club, and I'll send you the link. If you cannot join the masterclass live, you can watch the recording, which will be available for two weeks after the masterclass date. So now let's talk about today's episode. This is the 10th session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I host these sessions live at the Books and Culture YouTube channel. Every Thursday at 1 o'clock p.m. Central European time, I go live to read and discuss four chapters of the novel, offering contextual information and extra knowledge to make your reading experience even more meaningful. And based on a subscriber's suggestion, I've also brought this project to the podcast An Overview of English Literature, so that if you cannot join the live sessions on YouTube, you can listen to the audio version of the discussion here. I hope you like it. So it's time for our Jane Austen O'Clock at Books and Culture. Grab your own copy of Austen's Sense and Sensibility, a cup of tea or coffee, and read along with me. You can pause and continue at any time. And if you'd like to join one of the live video sessions, you can do so via the Books and Culture YouTube channel. Bear in mind that these sessions were not originally thought of as audio-only documents. So I apologize in advance if something is not clear or for long pauses. I hope you enjoy this format. I'd love to receive your feedback via email at hello at booksandculture.club. So let's get started with the 10th session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome to our Jane Austen O'Clock at Books and Culture. I have my tea ready. It's a cloudy, rainy, and a bit cold day in the Netherlands. So I would say it's the perfect day to stay inside and read. <laughs> um, how is the weather like where you are watching this from? Um, today's session 10. So we have been... Uh, discussing Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility for the past 10 weeks, which is great. Um, today we'll talk about chapters 
34 to 37, which means that we'll read the last three chapters of volume two, and we're going to read the first chapter of volume three. So we are slowly moving towards the resolution of the novel. Um, the current situation is that there are two heartbroken sisters, Marianne and Eleanor Dashwood, both heartbroken. So where do you think this story is going? Where is it leading to? Um, if you've read it before, or if you've watched, um, uh, if you've read it before, or if you have watched adaptations of the novel, you know what happens. But if this is your first time, I'm curious to know your opinion. And my second announcement is that um, if you want to know more about Jane Austen, her life, her writing career, the world in which she lived in, I would uh, recommend following the course, the Jane Austen Club, which I have created for the Books and Culture uh, website. And you can find more information at um, books on booksandculture.club, the website booksandculture.club. Um, I'm receiving a lot of positive feedback from my students, which is great. I'm very proud of what I have created. And I'm sure that uh, Jane Austen lovers like us will really enjoy the course and that you will learn new things, even though you already have a big knowledge, great knowledge about the Austen um, curriculum, let's say. I would like to share um, uh, one of my students' feedback. So this is from Megan. Um, she said, once I began with the courses, I couldn't stop. I devoured each word and element that it is filled with. Since my journey started at the Creative Reader Academy and learning about one of my favorite authors, Jane Austen, I'm filled with passion to read, create, and write. So Megan is a writer. Um, and the course has been um, good in two ways. So for her as a book lover, as an interested reader, but also for her as a writer. So I always say, and I will repeat it many times, that in order to be a good writer, you have to first be a great reader. And that's what we're doing here today. We are exploring our... Uh, reading, developing our reading skills. And, well, last time we talked about chapters 30 to 33. So let's refresh our memory. What did we talk about? So Mrs. Jennings brings the news of Willoughby's marriage to Miss Gray. It is done. Uh, Willoughby is married to Miss Gray. And it's talk about all over town. And they find out that Miss Gray has 50,000 pounds. So that explains it all, right? Money explains it all. That is the reason why uh, Willoughby married Miss uh, Gray in order to be able to keep up his very extravagant and rich and expensive lifestyle. Marianne is devastated as we know she would be. She is learning how to 
compose herself and how to use fortitude, how to exert herself. That is the, the word that Eleanor uses. And it is a very topical word from late 18th and early 19th century. To exert yourself meant, still means, but especially then, meant to use the power of your brain, of your mind, to control the passions of the body. To use rationality over emotion. And that's what she's trying to do. Of course, it's hard for Marianne. We know about her personality. And she is encouraged by Eleanor to do that, not only for herself, but for the people that she loves. So Eleanor does not want to see her suffering. Their mother doesn't want to see her suffering. So she does compose herself more out of, uh, out of love for others than compassion for herself. Um, Colonel Brandon knows the news, but continues to be even more serious and thoughtful, which causes Mrs. Jennings to wonder, why is he serious and thoughtful? I thought he would be jumping up and down to know that Marianne is still available. That's not the case. And then something very important from last session. Colonel Brandon tells his personal story to Eleanor to alleviate Marianne's suffering. And it is perhaps a big surprise. It is definitely one of the high points in the, in the narrative. So until then, Colonel Brandon was a very mysterious and reserved character. And we did not know why he was such a reserved and quiet man at the age of 35. But now we know. So he had been in love with a woman named Eliza who resembled Marianne in appearance and spirit. So maybe that's the reason why Colonel Brandon saw something special in Marianne right from the start. But this woman, Eliza, was forced to marry his brother, Colonel Brandon's brother, who mistreated her. And they were eventually divorced because she had been unfaithful. So we talked about it last time. Divorce was very difficult to get only in extreme circumstances and very expensive. So only wealthy people could afford a divorce. And it was mainly in the case of adultery. And as after the divorce, Eliza is left with no money and no home, it is clear, although it's not explicit written, that it was her who committed adultery. So she is expelled from her house um, and to, in order to survive, she begins a life of sin, which probably means that she was working as a prostitute. And she had a daughter from her first seducer, whom she left to Brandon's care when she died. And this girl, the daughter of Eliza, is the one um, that they refer to as Miss Williams. So Colonel Brandon takes care of Miss Eliza's education, but at 14 years old, she goes to Bath with a friend and disappears for eight months. I think she was 14 years old um, at another uh, circumstance. And when she went to Bath, she was already 16, but still very young. And she 
disappears for eight months. And then later, uh, Colin O'Brien learns that she was seduced and abandoned by, guess who? Willoughby. Willoughby had seduced Miss Williams and they had an illegitimate child together and Willoughby simply abandoned her. <clears throat> and Colonel Brandon, that's why he had to leave very suddenly in um, uh, one of uh, the past chapters. He had to go back to London immediately to take care of this. Um, and Colonel Brandon tells Eleanor this because he knows that she will tell Marianne and that will alleviate her suffering because she will know more about Willoughby's character and will be relieved to know that she did not have the same fate as poor Miss Williams. And Marianne is recovering, trying to control her emotions. And now she looks at Colonel Brandon differently. Remember, we discussed this many times, how Marianne looks at the world through a romantic lens. So I'm pretty sure that this exciting, dramatic, romantic um, story, narrative, love narrative, um, affects the way that Marianne sees Colonel Brandon. Because he's not just an old, sad, serious man. He's a man who has suffered for love. And not only once, but twice, right? So Willoughby is married and leaves down. And guess who's back? The Miss Stills are back, <laughs> Lucy and Nancy. And Lucy is surprised to see Eleanor still there. And she emphasizes the word still there because in their previous conversation, um, Eleanor had said that they would probably not stay in London um, later than January, but the circumstances have changed. And it's February, they're still there. And of course, Lucy doesn't want Eleanor there because... Edward Ferrers is coming to London. So the two rivals. Um, and the Dashwood sisters run into their brother, John Dashwood, at a jeweler's. He was complaining about having no money at all, and then he was spending money at a jeweler's. He comes to visit them at Mrs. Jennings the next day, but Fanny doesn't join because she doesn't want to be associated with people that got money in a low way. Um, and she was referring to Mrs. Jennings because Mrs. Jennings was married to a tradesman. And that is low money, dirty money, money that comes from business, from trade, and not by inheritance. But um, John Dashwood tells Fanny that they are in fact very respectable people and that Mrs. Jennings' daughter is Lady Middleton. So she became a lady through marriage um, to Sir John. And Eleanor finds out that, well, can this girl suffer anymore? She finds out that Edward Ferris is to be married to a Miss Morton, another young lady with a big fortune. And John Dashwood, oblivious of everything, thinks that Colonel Brandon wishes to marry Eleanor and he wants to promote this match because it would be a very profitable match, right? And that's what we talked about last time. Jenny says that his story was so sad, makes sense how he behaves now, having been heartbroken. Definitely. It's very sad. Um, he suffered a lot for love and... I think that is the only reason acceptable for Marianne, perhaps, for someone to act like he did. So I think 
from now on she will uh, understand where his um, quietness comes from and admire him for, for that. It is a really heartbreaking story. Connor Brandon is one of my favorite characters. And of course, I always remember um, Alan Rickman, who plays Colonel Brandon in um, the adaptation of Sense and Sensibility. Although Colonel Brandon, as we know, was 35 years old and Alan Rickman was way older when he played the role. But to give the, the idea that um, he was much older than the Dashwood girls, because that's how they felt, Marion, precisely. All right. So, yes, Jenny agrees he was brilliant in that. Such, such a good actor. Brilliant. I would like to watch this film again. Um, yes, I'm thinking, I think I mentioned in a previous session, I'm, I'm thinking of having, um, of hosting a workshop after we finish the guided reading of Sense and Sensibility uh, to discuss, uh, to cinematographic adaptations of Sense and Sensibility. That would be nice. So let's start with uh, chapter 34 or chapter 12 from volume two. Mrs. John Dashwood. Guess who's back? Mrs. John Dashwood. Fanny Dashwood is back. Mrs. John Dashwood had so much confidence in her husband's judgment that she waited the very next day both on Mrs. Jennings and her daughter. And her confidence was rewarded by finding even the former, even the woman with whom her sisters were staying, by no means unworthy her notice. And as for Lady Middleton, she found her one of the most charming women in the world. Lady Middleton was equally pleased with Mrs. Dashwood. There was a kind of cold-hearted selfishness on both sides, which mutually attracted them, and they sympathized with each other in an insipid propriety of the manner and a general want of understanding. This is the narrator's voice, very sarcastic and very judgmental. So the two women, the two terrible women, of course they got along together because they were both cold-hearted, selfish, and insipid, and lacked understanding. The same manners, however, which recommended Mrs. John Dashwood to the good opinion of Lady Middleton, did not suit the fancy of Mrs. Jennings, and to her she appeared nothing more than a little proud-looking woman of uncordial address who met her husband's sisters without any affection and almost without having anything to say to them. For of the quarter of an hour bestowed on Berkeley Street, she sat at least seven minutes and a half in silence. Mrs. Jennings. I like this character. She is very inappropriate at times, but she really likes the girls, uh, Marianne and Eleanor, and she thinks Mrs. Dashwood is, John Dashwood, is such a proud-looking woman that did not give the appropriate enough attention to her sisters. And she only stayed for a quarter of an hour. Remember, that was the 15 minutes was the minimum for a social visit. And out of this 15 minutes, she sat at least seven in half a silence. Terrible woman. Eleanor wanted very much to know, though she did not choose to ask, whether Edward was then in town but nothing would have induced Fanny voluntarily to mention his name before her, till able to tell her that his marriage with Miss Morton was resolved on, or till her husband's expectations on Colonel Brandon were answered. 
because she believed them still so very much attached to each other that they could not be too sedulously divided in word and deed on every occasion. The intelligence, however, which she would not give, soon flowed from another quarter. Lucy came very shortly to claim Eleanor's compassion on being unable to see Edward, though he had arrived in town with Mr. and Mrs. Dashwood. He dared not come to Bartlett's buildings for fear of detection, and though their mutual impatience to meet was not to be told, they could do nothing at present but write. Edward assured them himself of his being in town within a very short time by twice calling in Berkeley Street. Twice was his card found on the table when they returned from their morning's engagements. Eleanor was pleased that he had called and still more pleased that she had missed him. The Dashwoods were so prodigiously delighted with the Middletons that, though not much in the habit of giving anything, they determined to give them a dinner. See the sarcastic pause with the dash? They determined to give them what, what? A dinner, that's all. And soon after their acquaintance began, invited them to dine in Harley Street, where they had taken a very good house for three months. Their sisters and Mrs. Jennings were invited likewise, and John Dashwood was careful to secure Colonel Brandon, who, always glad to be where the Miss Dashwoods were, received his eager civilities with some surprise, but much more pleasure. They were to meet Mrs. Ferrers, but Eleanor could not learn whether her sons were to be of the party. The expectation of seeing her, however, was enough to make her interested in the engagement. For though she could now meet Edward's mother without that strong anxiety which had once promised to attend such an introduction, though she could now see her with perfect indifference as to her opinion of herself, her desire of being in company with Mrs. Ferris, her curiosity to know what she was like, was as lively as ever. Even though Eleanor doesn't care, within quotations, marks, doesn't care about um, uh, Mrs. Ferris, about being approved by Mrs. Ferris anymore, because uh, her engagement to Edward would never work. She's still curious to see what kind of a woman she is. The interest with which she thus anticipated the party was soon afterwards increased, more powerfully than pleasantly, by her hearing that the Miss Stills were also to be at it. So well had they recommended themselves to Lady Middleton, so agreeable had their assiduities made them to her, that though Lucy was certainly not elegant, and her sister not even genteel, she was as ready as Sir John to ask them to spend a week or two in Conduit Street, and it happened to be particularly convenient to the Miss Stills, as soon as the Dashwood's invitation was known, that their visit should begin a few days before the party took place. Their claims to the notice of Mrs. John Dashwood, as the nieces of the gentleman who for many years had had the care of her brother, might not have done much, however, towards procuring them seats at her table. But as Lady Middleton's guests, they must be welcome. And Lucy, who had long wanted to be personally known to the family, to have a nearer view of their characters and her own difficulties, and to have an opportunity of endeavouring to please them, had seldom been happier in her life than she was on receiving Mrs. John Dashwood's card. So she's going to try to play the same game she played with the Middletons, with um, 
yeah, the Dashwoods, she wants to please them, um, flatter them in order to be accepted and welcomed in their house. But could, could that be enough for the family to approve her as a fiancé for their beloved son? On Eleanor, its effect was very different. She began immediately to determine that Edward, who lived with his mother, must be asked, as his mother was, to a party given by his sister. And to see him for the first time after all that passed, in the company of Lucy, she hardly knew how she could bear it. These apprehensions perhaps were not founded entirely on reason, and certainly not at all on truth. They were, they were relieved, however, not by her own recollection, but by the goodwill of Lucy, who believed herself to be inflicting a severe disappointment when she told her that Edward certainly would not be in Harley Street on Tuesday, and even hoped to be carrying the pain still farther by persuading her that he was kept away by that extreme affection for herself, which he could not conceal when they were together. Yeah, right. <laughs> I wonder if Lucy truly believes this or if she is trying to play to show this facade to Eleanor or if she's trying to convince herself of this. The important Tuesday came that was to introduce the two young ladies to this formidable mother-in-law, the, mo the, the <laughs> prospective mother-in-law and the two rivals in the same room. Pity me, dear Miss Dashwood, said Lucy as they walked up the stairs together. For the Middletons arrived so directly after Mrs. Jennings that they all followed the servant at the same time. There is nobody here but you that can feel for me. I declare I can hardly stand. Good gracious, in a moment I shall see the person that all my happiness depends on. That is to be my mother. Eleanor could have given her immediate relief by suggesting the possibility of its being Miss Morton's mother rather than her own, whom they were about to behold. But instead of doing that, she assured her and with great sincerity that she did pity her. To the utter amazement of Lucy, who, though really uncomfortable herself, hoped at least to be an object of irrepressible envy to Eleanor. Lucy keeps pretending that she's, she's over polite and... Uh, friendly to Eleanor, but that's not because she cares about Eleanor or likes her. It's because, because she wants to hurt Eleanor and to make her aware that Edward is taken. And she does this all the time. But Eleanor composes herself, exerts herself, and she doesn't say anything. She just nods and continues. Now let's see what kind of a person Mrs. Ferris is. Mrs. Ferris was a little thin woman, upright even to formality in her figure, and serious even to sourness in her aspect. Her complexion was sallow, and her features small, without beauty, and naturally without expression, but a lucky contraction of the brow had rescued her countenance from the disgrace of insipidity by giving it to strong characters of pride and ill nature. She was not a woman of many words, for, unlike people in general, she proportioned them to the number of her ideas. And of the few syllables that did escape her, not one felt the share of Miss Dashwood, whom she eyed with the spirited determination of disliking her at all events. Eleanor could not now be made unhappy by this behavior. 
A few months ago, it would have hurt her exceedingly, but it was not in Mrs. Ferris' power to distress her by it now. And the difference of her manners to the Miss Steeles, a difference which seemed purposely made to humble her more, only amused her. She could not buy she could not but smile to see the graciousness of both mother and daughter towards the very person, for Lucy was particularly distinguished, whom of all others, had they known as much as she did, they would have been most anxious to mortify. While she herself, who had comparatively no power to wound them, sat pointedly slighted by both. So they're doing everything they can, Mrs. Ferris and um, uh, and. Fanny Dashwood. They're doing everything they can to slight Eleanor on purpose, to make her feel unwelcome. And to uh, do that, they over, um, they are over friendly, over polite, all over the place with Lucy Still. Little do they know that it is actually Miss Still who is secretly engaged to Edward and the very person who they would be. Um, most anxious to mortify, as the, the, the narrator says. But while she smiled at a graciousness so misapplied, she could not reflect on the mean-spirited folly from which it sprung, nor observe the studied attentions with which the Miss Steels courted its continuance without thoroughly despising them all four. Lucy was all exultation on being so honorably distinguished, and Miss Steele wanted only to be teased about Dr. Davis to be perfectly happy. The dinner was a grand one. The servants were numerous, and everything bespoke the mistress's inclination for show and the master's ability to support it. In spite of the improvements and additions which were making to the Norland estate, and in spite of its owner having once been within some thousand pounds of being obliged to sell out at a loss, nothing gave any symptom of that indigence which he had tried to infer from it. No poverty of any kind, except of conversation, appeared. But there, the deficiency was considerable. They're showing off their wealth, the Dashwoods. Even though John Dashwood keeps complaining, especially in front of... Uh, Eleanor and Marianne, that he has no money, so then they will not expect any, any money from him. They do have a lot, and they're showing off. He was a very expensive jeweler um, in London. Now he gives a grand dinner with a lot of servants, so showing off wealth. There is no poverty, except, as the sarcastic narrator says, and through Eleanor's perspective. Eleanor, Eleanor's point of view here is very... Uh, critical. She's judging everyone. There's no poverty, only poverty of conversation. John Dashwood had not much to say for himself that was worth hearing, and his wife had still less. But there was no peculiar disgrace in this, for it was very much the case with the chief of their visitors, who almost all labored under one or other of these disqualifications for being agreeable. Want of sense, either natural or improved, Want of elegance, want of spirits, or want of temper. That's Eleanor's point of view, looking at everyone and judging. When the ladies withdrew to the drawing room after dinner, this poverty was particularly evident, the poverty of conversation. For the gentlemen had supplied the discourse with some variety, the variety of politics, enclosing land, and breaking horses. But then it was all over, 
and one subject only engaged the ladies till coffee came in, which was the comparative heights of Harry Dashwood and Lady Middleton's second son William, who were nearly of the same age. Had both the children been there, the affair might have been determined too easily by measuring them at once. But as Harry only was present, it was all conjectural assertion on both sides, and everybody had a right to be equally positive in their opinion, and to repeat it over and over again as often as they liked. The parties stood thus, so they took the time to discuss this, uh, talk about poverty of conversation. <clears throat> the two mothers, though each really convinced that, th that their own son was the tallest, politely decided in favor of the other. The fake politeness, right? The two grandmothers, with no less partiality but more sincerity, were equally earnest in support of their own descendant. Lucy, who was hardly less anxious to please one parent than the other, thought the boys were both remarkably tall for their age and could not conceive that there could be the smallest difference in the world between them. And Miss Steele, with yet greater address, gave it as fast as she could in favor of both. Elnor, having once delivered her opinion on William's side, by which she offended Mrs. Ferris and Fanny still more, did not see the necessity of enforcing it by any farther assertion. And Marianne, when called on for hers, offended them all by declaring that she had no opinion to give as she had never thought about it. <laughs> this is such a funny um, uh, extract. Just by describing their positions of these characters, the narrator makes, um, makes their personality explicit. And it's very it's hilarious, in fact. Um, before her removing from Norland, Eleanor had painted a very pretty pair of screens for her sister-in-law, which being now just mounted and brought home, ornamented her present drawing room. And these screens, catching the eye of John Dashwood on his following the other gentleman into the room, were officially handed by him to Colonel Brandon for his admiration, putting his plan in motion, marrying Eleanor with Colonel Brandon. These are done by my eldest sister, said he. And you, as a man of taste, will, I dare say, be pleased with them. I do not know whether you ever happened to see any of her performances before, but she is in general reckoned to draw extremely well. The colonel, though disclaiming all pretensions to connoisseurship, warmly admired the screens as he would have done anything painted by Miss Dashwood. And the curiosity of the others being, of course, excited, they were handed round for general inspection. Mrs. Ferris, not aware of their being Eleanor's work, particularly requested to look at them, and after they had received the gratifying testimony of Lady Middleton's approbation, Fanny presented them to her mother, considerately informing her at the same time that they were done by Miss Dashwood. So then she could not like it. Huh? <clears throat> said Mrs. Ferris. Very pretty. And without regarding them at all, returned them to her daughter. Perhaps Fanny thought for a moment that her mother had been quite rude enough. For coloring a little, she immediately said, They are very pretty, ma'am, aren't they? But then again, the dread of having been too civil, too encouraging herself, probably came over her, for she presently added, <clears throat> Do you not think that there is something in Miss Morton's style of painting, ma'am? She does paint most delightfully. How beautifully her last landscape is done. 
beautifully indeed, but she does everything well. Marianne could not bear this. She was already greatly displeased with Mrs. Ferris, and such ill-timed ill -timed praise of another at Eleanor's expense, though she had not any notion of what was principally meant by it, provoked her immediately to say with warmth, This is admiration of a very particular kind. What is Miss Morton to us? Who knows or who cares for her? It is of Eleanor of whom we think and speak. And so saying, she took the screens out of her sister-in-law's hand to admire them herself as they ought to be admired. Mrs. Ferris looked exceedingly angry and drawing herself up more stiffly than ever, pronounced in retort this bitter Philip Philippic. Miss Morton is Lord Morton's daughter. As if that answers anything, right? Fanny looked very angry too, and her husband was all in a fright at his sister's audacity. Eleanor was much more hurt by Marianne's warmth than she had been by what produced it. But Colonel Brandon's eyes, as they were fixed on Marianne, declared that he noticed only what was amiable in it, the affectionate heart which could not bear to see a sister slighted in the smallest point. Marianne's feelings did not stop here. The cold insolence of Mrs. Ferris' general behavior to her sister seemed to her to foretell such difficulties and distresses to Eleanor as her own wounded heart taught her to think of with horror. And urged by a strong impulse of affectionate sensibility, she moved after a moment to her sister's chair and putting one arm around her and one cheek close to hers, said in a low but eager voice, Dear, dear Eleanor, don't mind them. Don't let them make you unhappy. She could say no more. Her spirits were quite overcome, and hiding her face on Eleanor's shoulder, she burst into tears. Everybody's attention was called, and almost everybody was concerned. Colonel Brandon rose up and went to them without knowing what he did. Mrs. Jennings, with a very intelligent, oh, poor dear, immediately gave her her salts for her to smell, you know, to revive. And Sir John felt so desperately enraged against the author of this nervous distress that he instantly changed his seat to one close by Lucy Steele and gave her in a whisper a brief account of the whole shocking affair. Gossiping, right? Telling Lucy Steele what had happened to make Marianne suffer so. Burst into tears all of a sudden. In a few minutes, however, Marianne was recovered enough recovered enough to put an end to the bustle and sit down among the rest, though her spirits retained the impression of what had passed the whole evening. Poor Marianne, said her brother to Colonel Brandon in a low voice as soon as he could secure his attention. She has not such good health as her sister. She's very nervous. She has not Eleanor's constitution. And one must allow that there is something very trying to a young woman who has been a beauty in the loss of her personal attractions. You would not think it perhaps, but Marianne was remarkably handsome a few months ago, quite as handsome as Eleanor. Now you see, it is all gone. How clueless is John? <laughs> um, very well, this is the end of chapter 12, volume 2, or chapter 34. Uh, so the Dashwoods are in town, and Eleanor finally meets Mrs. Ferris, Edward's mother. And it was not a good experience.
What do you think of this character, Mrs. Ferris? And how she acts towards Eleanor on purpose to hurt her, right? Well, let's continue with chapter 35 or chapter 13 in volume 2. Eleanor's curiosity to see Mrs. Ferris was satisfied. She had found in her everything that could tend to make a farther connection between the families undesirable. She had seen enough of her pride, her meanness, and her determined prejudice against herself to comprehend all the difficulties that must have perplexed the engagement and retarded the marriage of Edward and herself had he been otherwise free. And she had seen almost enough to be thankful for her own sake that one greater obstacle preserved her from suffering under any other of Mrs. Ferris' creation, preserved her from all dependence upon her caprice or any solicitude for her good opinion. Or at least if she did not bring herself quite to rejoice in Edward's being fettered to Lucy, she determined that had Lucy been more amiable, she ought to have rejoiced. So, you know, Eleanor dislikes Mrs. Ferris and she thinks maybe it's for the best. Maybe it's for the best that I will not be part of this family because that's how I would be treated the whole time. Jenny says, I was looking forward to meeting Mrs. Ferris. She's as awful as I was expecting her to be. Very. And the way she treats Eleanor is just inexcusable. Um, but at least Eleanor rationalizes. She's, she's always thinking, right? Putting things into perspective. At least now she knows that's the kind of woman that Mrs. Ferris is. And at least I will be free from her... Um, company from her presence now that I'm not engaged or that I have no, no prospects of being engaged to Edward. She wondered that Lucy's spirits could be so very much elevated by the civility of Mrs. Ferris that her interest and her vanity should so very much blind her as to make the attention which seemed only paid her because she was not Eleanor appear a compliment to herself or to allow her to derive encouragement from a preference only given her because her real situation was unknown. But that it was so had not only been declared by Lucy's eyes at the time, but was declared over again in the next morning more openly, for at her particular desire, Lady Middleton set her down in Berkeley Street on the chance of seeing Eleanor alone to tell her how happy she was. Eleanor thinks, how blind can Lucy be? Can't she tell that they're only praising her and compliment her because she's not Eleanor? And if they knew about her secret engagement to Edward, they would not have treated her that way. But apparently Lucy doesn't mind and she is radiant, exultant to show off this happiness to Eleanor. The chance proved a lucky one for a message a message from Mrs. Palmer soon after she arrived carried Mrs. Jennings away. My dear friend, cried Lucy as soon as they were by themselves, I come to talk to you of my happiness. Dear friend, that's great. Could anything be so flattering as Mrs. Ferris' way of treating me yesterday? So exceeding affable as she was. You know how I dreaded the thoughts of seeing her, but the very moment I was introduced, there was such an affability in her behavior as really should seem to say she had quite took a fancy to me. 
Remember that uh, Lucy did not have a formal education, so she makes grammar mistakes. For instance, she says that she had quite took fancy to. Now, was not it so? You saw it all, and was not you quite struck with it? She was certainly very civil to you. Civil? Did you see nothing but only civility? I saw a vast deal more. Such kindness as felt the share of nobody but me. No pride, no hauteur, and your sister just the same. All sweetness and affability. Eleanor wished to talk of something else, but Lucy still pressed her to own that she had reason for her happiness, and Eleanor was obliged to go on. Undoubtedly, if they had known your engagement, said she, nothing could be more flattering than their treatment of you, but as that was not the case, I guessed you would say so, replied Lucy quickly, but there was no reason in the world why Mrs. Ferris should seem to like me if she did not, and her liking me is everything. You shan't talk me out of my satisfaction. I'm sure it will end I'm sure it will all end well, and there will be no difficulties at all to what I used to think. Miss Ferris is a charming woman, and so is your sister. They are both delightful women indeed. I wonder I should never hear you say how agreeable Mrs. Dashwood was. To this, Eleanor had no answer to make and did not attempt any. Are you ill, Miss Dashwood? You seem low. You don't speak. Sure you ain't well. I never was in better health. This is an objective sentence, but it says so much more, right? She says, I never was in better health, but she's not talking about her mood, her spirits, her emotions. Those are not well at all. I'm glad of it with all my heart, but really you did not look it. I should be so sorry to have you ill. You, that have been the greatest comfort to me in the world. Heaven knows what I should have done without your friendship. Eleanor tried to make a civil answer, though doubting her own success. But it seemed to satisfy Lucy, for she directly replied. Indeed, I am perfectly convinced of your regard for me. And next to Edward's love, it is the greatest comfort I have. Remember, they only know, they've only known each other for like two months, three months. <laughs> the greatest comfort in the world. Poor Edward. But now there is one good thing we shall be able to meet and meet pretty often. For Lady Middleton's, deli Lady Middleton's delighted with Mrs. Dashwood, so we shall be a good deal in Hartley Street, I dare say. And Edward spends half his time with his sister. Besides, Lady Middleton and Mrs. Ferris will visit now. And Mrs. Ferris and your sister were both so good to say more than once, they should always be glad to see me. They are such charming women. I'm sure if ever you tell your sister what I think of her, you cannot speak too high. But Elder would not give her any encouragement to hope that she should tell her sister. Lucy continued. I'm sure I should have seen it in a moment if Mrs. Ferris had took a dislike to me. If she had only made me a formal curtsy, for instance, without saying a word, and ever after had took my notice, any notice of me, and never looked at me in a pleasant way, you know what I mean? If I had been treated in that forbidden sort of way, I should have gave it all up in despair. I should not have stood it, for where she does dislike, I know it is most violent. A hint at Eleanor here. 
Elnor was prevented from making any reply to this civil triumph. Love it. This civil triumph. By the doors being thrown open, the servants announcing Mr. Ferris and Edwards immediately walking in. So there they are, Elnor, Lucy, and Edward, alone in one room. How awkward can it be? <laughs> it was a very awkward moment, and the countenance of each showed that it was so. They all looked exceedingly foolish, and Edward seemed to have as great an inclination to walk out of the room again as to advance farther into it. The very circumstance, in its unpleasantest form, which they would each have been most anxious to avoid, had fallen on them. They were not only all three together, but were together without the relief of any other person. The ladies recovered themselves first. It was not Lucy's business to put herself forward, and the appearance of secrecy must still be kept up. She could therefore only look her tenderness, and after slightly addressing him, said no more. But Elnor had more to do, and so anxious was she, for his sake and her own, to do it well, that she forced herself, after a moment's recollection, to welcome him with a look and manner that were almost easy and almost open. And another struggle, another effort, still improved them. She would not allow the presence of Lucy, nor the consciousness of some injustice towards herself, to deter her from saying that she was happy to see him, and that she had very much regretted being from home when he called before in Berkeley Street. She would not be frightened from paying him those attentions which, as a friend and almost a relation, were his due. By the observant eyes of Lucy, though she, she soon perceived them to be narrowly watching her. Like an eagle, what are you doing? Her manners gave some reassurance to Edward, and he had courage enough to sit down, but his embarrassment still exceeded that of the ladies, in a proportion which the case rendered reasonable, though his sex might make it rare, for his heart had not the indifference of Lucy's, nor could his conscience have quite the ease of Eleanor's. Lucy, with a demure and settled air, seemed determined to make no contribution to the comfort of the others, and would not say a word and almost everything that was said proceeded from Eleanor, who was obliged to volunteer all the information about her mother's health, their coming to town, etc., which Edward ought to have inquired about, but never did. That was a protocol, right? When you come to visit, you ask about the mother's health, their coming to town, etc., but Edward was so embarrassed, so um, feeling so awkward that he didn't, so Eleanor did it for him. Her exertions did not stop here, for she soon afterwards felt herself so heroically disposed as to determine, under pretense of fetching Marianne, to leave the others by themselves. And she really did it, and that in the handsomest manner, for she loitered away several minutes on the landing place with the most high-minded fortitude before she went to her sister. She even left the two of them alone so they could talk. With the most high-minded fortitude, definitely. When that was once done, however, it was time for the raptures of Edward to cease, for Marianne's joy hurried her into the drawing room immediately. Her pleasure in seeing him was like every other of her feeling, strong in itself and strongly spoken. She met him with a hand that would be taken and a voice that expressed the affection of a sister. Dear Edward, she cried, this is a moment of great happiness. 
this would almost make amends for everything. Edward tried to return her kindness as it deserved, but before such witnesses, he dared not say half what he really felt. Again, they all sat down for a moment, and for a moment or two, all were silent, while Marianne was looking with the most speaking tenderness, sometimes at Edward and sometimes at Eleanor, regretting only that their delight in each other should be checked by Lucy's unwelcome presence. Edward was the first to speak, and it was to notice Marianne's altered looks and express his fear of her not finding London agree with her. Oh, don't think of me, she replied with spirited earnestness, though her eyes were filled with tears as she spoke. Don't think of my health. Eleanor is well, you see, that must be enough for us both. This remark was not calculated to make Edward or Eleanor more easy, nor to conciliate the goodwill of Lucy, who looked up at Marianne with no very benign, benign expression. Marianne has no clue of what's going on, right? In her mind, um, Mary, I mean, in her mind, Eleanor has feelings for Edward and Edward has feelings for Marianne and Lucy is just a third wheel there, an unwelcome presence. Do you like London? said Edward, willing to say anything that might introduce another subject. Not at all. I expected much pleasure in it, but I have found none. The sight of you, Edward, is the only comfort it has afforded. And thank heaven you are what you always were. And she's in her mind comparing Edward to Willoughby. She paused. No one spoke. I think, Eleanor, she presently added, we must employ Edward to take care of us in our return to Barton. In a week or two, I suppose, we shall be going, and I trust Edward will not be very unwilling to accept the charge. Poor Edward muttered something, but what it was, nobody knew, not even himself. But Marianne, who saw his agitation and could easily trace it to whatever cause best pleased herself, was perfectly satisfied and soon talked of something else. We spent such a day, Edward, in Harley Street yesterday, so dull, so wretchedly dull, but I have much to say to you on that head, which cannot be said now. And with this admirable discretion did she defer the assurance of her finding their mutual relatives more disagreeable than ever, and of her being particularly disgusted with his mother, till they were more in private. But why were you not there, Edward? Why did you not come? I was engaged elsewhere. Engaged? But what was that when such friends were to be met? Perhaps, Miss Marianne, cried Lucy, eager to take some revenge on her. You think young men never stand upon engagements if they have no mind to keep them, little as well as great. Whoa, another civil triumph here, right? She's definitely hinting at Willoughby, who did not keep his engagement, his promise to to Marianne. Eleanor was very angry, but Marianne seemed entirely insensible of the sting, for she calmly replied, Not so indeed, for seriously speaking, I am very sure that conscience only kept Edward from Harley Street, and I really believe he has the most delicate conscience in the world, the most scrupulous in performing every engagement, however minute and however it may make against his interest or pleasure. He is the most fearful of giving pain, of wounding expectation, and the most incapable of being selfish of anybody I ever saw. Edward, it is so, and I will say it. What, are you never to hear yourself praised? 
then you must be no friend of mine, for those who will accept of my love and esteem must submit to my open commendation. And now here, <laughs> Marianne is boasting that Edward is a good man and that he keeps all his engagements. And of course, each one present would understand that differently. She's thinking of his engagements to Eleanor and Lucy and uh, Edward and Eleanor are thinking of his prior engagement to Lucy that Marianne knows nothing about. The nature of her commendation in the present case, however, happened to be particularly ill-suited to the feelings of two-thirds of her auditors and was so very unexhilarating to Edward that he very soon got up to go away. Going so soon, said Marianne, my dear Edward, this must not be. And drawing him a little aside, she whispered her persuasion that Lucy could not stay much longer. But even this encouragement failed, for he would go. And Lucy, who would have outstayed him had his visit lasted two hours, soon afterwards went away. What can bring her here so often, said Marianne on her leaving them. Could she not see that we wanted her gone? How teasing to Edward. Why so? We were all his friends, and Lucy has been the longest known to him of any. It is but natural that he should like to see her as well as ourselves. So Helen is preparing the ground here. But Marian looked at her steadily and said, You know, Eleanor, that this is a kind of talking which I cannot bear. If you only hope to have your assertion contradicted, as I must suppose to be the case, you ought to recollect that I am the last person in the world to do it. I cannot descend to be tricked out of assurances that are not really wanted. She then left the room, and Elnor dared not follow her to say more, for bound as she was by her promise of secrecy to Lucy, she could give no information that would convince Marianne. And painful as the consequences of her still continuing in an error might be, she was obliged to submit to it. All that she could hope was that Edward would not often expose her or himself to the distress of hearing Marianne's mistaken warmth, nor to the repetition of any other part of the pain that had attended their recent meeting, and this she had very reason, she had every reason to expect. What do you think about this awkward moment? The three of them alone, not knowing how to behave, and of course. Edward has no idea that Eleanor knows about his prior engagement to, to Lucy. And then Marion comes, and she's also clueless, even more. Um, so this was a short chapter, but very interesting to analyze their social interactions. And now let's move on to chapter 36, or chapter 14 of volume 2, which is the last chapter in volume two. So let's take a look at how this volume ends. Jenny says you can almost feel the awkwardness. Yes, the way Jane Austen uses language, right? You can feel Ed Edward's, especially Edward's awkwardness and Marion's cluelessness. <laughs> um, very well done. All right. Within a few days after this meeting, the newspapers announced the world that the lady of Thomas Palmer, um, Esquire, was safely delivered of a son and heir, 
a very interesting and satisfactory paragraph, at least to all those intimate connections who knew it before. <laughs> so not at all, not really useful, right? This event, highly important to Mrs. Jennings' happiness, produced a temporary alteration in the disposal of her time and influenced in a like degree the engagements of her young friends. For as she wished to be as much as possible with Charlotte, she went thither every morning as soon as she was dressed and did not return till late in the evening. And the Miss Dashwoods, at the particular request of the Middletons, spent the whole of every day in Conduit Street. They could never do what they wanted. Remember, we talked about this. They were pawns. They would be brought here and there, and they had no choice. So, as it says here, for their own comfort, they would much rather have remained at least all the morning in Mrs. Jenny's house but it was not a thing to be urged against the wishes of everybody. So they had to comply with what other people wished. So since Mrs. Jennings was out of, out of the house, they should spend the whole day with the Middletons. Their hours were therefore made over to Lady Middleton and the two Miss Stills, and the Miss Stills were there on top of everything, by whom their company was in fact as little valued as it was professedly sought. They had too much sense to be desirable companions to the former, and by the latter they were considered with a jealous eye as intruding on their ground and sharing the kindness which they wanted to monopolize. Though nothing could be more polite than Lady Middleton's behavior to Eleanor and Marianne, she did not really like them at all, because they neither flattered herself nor her children. She could not believe them good-natured. And because they were fond of reading, she fancied them satirical, perhaps without exactly knowing what it was to be satirical, but that did not signify. It was censure in common use and easily given. Their presence was a restraint both on her and on Lucy. It checked the idleness of one and the business of the other. Lady Middleton was ashamed of doing nothing before them, and the flattery which Lucy was proud to think of and administer at other times, she feared they would despise her for offering. Miss Still was the least discomposed of the three by the presence, and it was in their power to reconcile her to it entirely. Would either of them only have given her a full and minute account of the whole affair between Marianne and Mr. Willoughby, she would have thought herself amply rewarded for the sacrifice of the best place by the fire after dinner, which their arrival occasioned. But this conciliation was not granted, for though she often threw out expressions of pity for her sister to Eleanor, and more than once dropped a reflection on the incons inconstancy of Beau before Marianne, no effect was produced but a look of indifference from the former or of disgust in the latter. Yet might have made the, her their friend. Would they only have laughed at her about the doctor? But so little were they, as any more than the others, inclined to oblige her, that if Sir John dined from home, she might spend a whole day without hearing any other raillery on the subject than what she was kind enough to bestow on herself. All these jealousies and discontents, however, were so totally unsuspected by Mrs. Jennings that she thought it a delightful thing for the girls to be together and generally congratulated her young friends every night on having escaped the company of a stupid old woman so long. <laughs> but I think in this case, Eleanor and Marianne would have preferred Mrs. Jennings' uh, company than the Miss Steeles and the Middletons.
She joined them sometimes at Sir John's and sometimes at her own house. But wherever it was, she always came in excellent spirits, full of delight and importance, attributing Charlotte's well-doing to her own care and ready to give so exact, so minute a detail of her situation as only Miss Steele had curiosity enough to desire. One thing did disturb her, and of that she made her daily complaint. Mr. Palmer maintained the common but unfatherly opinion among his sex of all infants being alike. And though she could plainly perceive at different times the most striking resemblance between this baby and every one of his relations on both sides, there was no convincing his father of it, no persuading him to believe that it was not exactly like every other baby of the same age, nor could he even be brought to acknowledge the simple proposition of its being the finest child in the world. Mr. Palmer, aloof in his marriage, is not even giving attention to his son. So uh, we can already anticipate the kind of life that Mrs. Palmer would have. Uh, remember, she once said uh, that, uh, the narrator said about her, that she was determined to be happy, which means that she was not actually happy. And that is so, so sad. But she has her son now and she has her mother's presence all the time. And the narrator says, I come now. So it's interesting that the narrator uses the first person narrative here. I come now to the relation of a misfortune, which about this time befell Mrs. John Dashwood. It so happened, and it creates an expectation, right? What is this tragedy? It so happened that while her two sisters with Mrs. Jennings were first calling on her in Harley Street, another of her acquaintance had dropped in a circumstance in itself not apparently likely to produce evil to her. But while the imaginations of other people will carry them away to form wrong judgments of our conduct and to decide on it by its light appearances, one's happiness must in some measure be always at the mercy of chance. In the present instance, this last arrived lady allowed her fancy so far to outrun truth and probability that on merely hearing the name of the Miss Dashwoods and understanding them to be Mr. Dashwood's sisters, she immediately concluded them to be staying in Harley Street. And this misconstruction produced within a day or two afterwards cards of invitation for them as well as for their brother and sister to a small musical party at her house. What a misfortune, right? And something, uh, what is it? So far out of truth and probability. So this woman simply deduced that since Eleanor and Marion Dashwood were in London and that Fanny and John Dashwood were in London, that they were staying together, they, she invited them all to a musical party. What a tragedy, right? Of course, the narrator is being sarcastic. The consequence of which, the consequence of this misfortune was that Mrs. John Dashwood was obliged to submit not only to the exceedingly great inconvenience of sending her carriage for the Miss Dashwoods, but what was still worse must be subject to all the unpleasantness of appearing to treat them with attention. And who could tell that they might not expect to go out with her a second time? <laughs> what a terrible woman. The power of disappointing them, it was true, must always be hers. But that was not enough. 
For when people are determined on a mode of conduct which they know to be wrong, they feel injured by the expectation of anything better from them. Marianne had now been brought by degrees so much into the habit of going out every day that it was become a matter of indifference to her whether she went or not. And she prepared quietly and mechanically for every evening's engagement, though without expecting the smallest amusement from any and very often without knowing to the last moment where it was to take her. How changed she is, right? To her dress and appearance, she was grown so perfectly indifferent as not to bestow half the consideration on it during the whole of her toilette, which it received from Miss Steele in the first five minutes of their being together when it was finished. So she has just given up. She doesn't care about where she's going. She always expects that she will not have fun and she doesn't care about how she looks. Nothing escaped her, Lucy's, minute observation and general curiosity. She saw everything and asked, oh, that's me still, so that's Nancy. She asked, she saw everything and asked everything. Was never easy till she knew the price of every part of Marianne's dress. Could have guessed the number of her gowns altogether with better judgment than Marianne herself. And was not without hopes of finding out before they parted how much her washing cost per week and how much she had every year to spend upon herself. Look at Miss Steele's impertinent curiosity. The impertinence of this kind of scrutinies, moreover, was generally concluded with a compliment, which though meant at, as its douceur, was considered by Marianne as the greatest impertinence of all. For after undergoing an examination into the value and make of her gown, the color of her shoes, and the arrangement of her hair, she was almost sure of being told that upon her word she looked vastly smart and she dared to say would make great many conquests. Something that Marianne could, couldn't care less about. With such encouragement as this, was she dismissed on the present occasion to her brother's carriage, which they were ready to enter five minutes after it stopped at the door, a punctuality not very agreeable to their sister-in-law, who had preceded them to the house of her acquaintance, and was there hoping for some delay on their part that might inconvenience either herself or her coachman. The events of the evening were not very remarkable. The party, like other musical parties, comprehended a great many people who had real taste for the performance, and a great many more who had none at all. And the performers themselves were, as usual, in their own estimation and that of their immediate friends, the first private performers in England, meaning the finest here, the finest private performers in England. As Eleanor was neither musical nor affecting to be so, she made no scruple of turning away her eyes from the grand pianoforte whenever it suited her, and unrestrained even by the presence of a harp and a viol violoncello would fix them at pleasure on any other object in the room. So Eleanor took the chance, she didn't enjoy music after all, to look around and observe the people. In one of these excursive glances, she perceived among a group of young men the very he who had given them a lecture on toothpick cases at Grace. Remember that. She perceived him soon afterwards looking at herself and speaking familiarly to her brother and had just determined to find out his name from the letter when they both came towards her and Mr. Dashwood introduced him to her as Mr. Robert Ferris. 
So that man who took like half an hour to choose a case for his toothpicks at the jewelers uh, and who glanced, stared at Marianne and uh, Eleanor for longer than uh, it would be polite, is Robert Ferris, Edward Ferris' brother. Hmm. What kind of a man is he? Let's see. Well, his first impression to Eleanor was not good at all. This is Eleanor's perspective of him. It's quite funny. He addressed her with easy civility and twisted his hat into a bow, which assured her as plainly as words could have done that he was exactly the coxcomb she had heard him described to be by Lucy. Happy had it been for her if her regard for Edward had depended less on his own merit than on the merit of his nearest relations. For then his brother's bow must have given the finishing stroke to what the ill humor of his mother and sister would have begun. But while she wondered at the difference of the two young men, Edward and Robert, she did not find that the emptiness and conceit of the one put her at all out of charity with the modesty and worth of the other. Why they were different, Robert explained to her himself in the course of a quarter of an hour's conversation. For talking of his brother and lamenting the extreme gaucherie which he really believed kept him from mixing in proper society, he candidly and generously attributed it much less to any natural deficiency than to the misfortune of a private education, while he himself, though probably without any particular, any material superiority by nature, merely from the advantage of a public school, was as well fitted to mix in the world as any other man. So here is an interesting contextual information. Robert says that he turns out he turned out to be a more sociable man than Edward because he went to public school while Edward was sent to private to a private education. Let's see. This note here is interesting. The distinction between Edward's time with Mr. Pratt, a private education, and Robert's education at Westminster, a public school. The debate between the two kinds of education was of long standing, but Jane Austen seems to share Cooper's condemnation of public education. This is a quote from Cooper. Would you, your son, should be a sort or would you, your son, should be a sot or dunce, lascivious, headstrong, or all these at once, for loose expense and fashionable waste, train him in public with a mob of boys, childish in mischief only and in noise. That's the quote. Jane Austen's father, like Mr. Pratt, took in students to educate privately. So perhaps we can read this more broadly as. So the distinction between Robert and Edward and between a public and a private education as Jane Austen's criticism against such public schools. Let's see, let's continue the conversation. Upon my soul, he added, I believe it is nothing more. And so I often tell my mother when she's grieving about it. My dear madam, I always say to her, you must make yourself easy. The evil, the evil is now irremediable, and it has been entirely your own doing. Why would you be persuaded by my uncle, Sir Robert, against your own judgment to place Edward under private tuition at the most critical time of his life? If you had only sent him to Westminster as well as myself, instead of sending him to Mr. Pratt's, all this would have been prevented. 
This is the way in which I always consider the matter, and my mother is perfectly cons convinced of her error. And that's because they don't know that during Edward's stay with Mr. Pratt, he, with Mr. Pratt, Lucy's uncle, he met Lucy, which led to their secret engagement. Let's see Eleanor's opinion on this. Eleanor would not oppose his opinion because whatever might be her general estimation of the advantage of a public school, she could not think of Edward's abode in Mr. Pratt's family with any satisfaction. So she doesn't say her opinion because even if she wanted to uh, promote um, private education, she just couldn't approve of Edward's being with Mr. Pratt because that's what led him to be with Lucy, etc. You reside in Devonshire, I think, was his next observation, in a cottage near Dawlish. Eleanor set him right as to its situation, and it seemed rather surprising to him that anybody could live in Devonshire without living near Dawlish. He bestowed his hearty approbation, however, on their species of house. So in their conversation, we see that uh, although Robert boasts about his public education of being a man of the world. He lacks practical and geographical knowledge, as this uh, conversation indicates. For my own part, said he, I am excessively fond of a cottage. There is always so much comfort, so much elegance about them. And I protest if I had any money to spare, I should buy a little land and build one myself within a short distance of London where I might drive myself down at any time and collect a few friends about me and be happy. I advise everybody who is going to build to build a cottage. He has a very romantic, idealized idea of a cottage, right? My friend Lord Cortland came to me the other day on purpose to ask my advice and laid before me three different plans of Bonomi's. Bonomi was a famous Italian architect at the time. I was to decide on the best of them. My dear Cortland, said I, immediately throwing them all into the fire, do not adopt either of them, but by all means build a cottage. And that, I fancy, will be the end of it. Some people imagine that there can be no accommodations, no space in a cottage, but this is all a mistake. I was last month at my friend Elliot's near Dartford. Lady Elliot wished to give a dance. But how can it be done? said she. My dear Ferris, do tell me how it is to be managed. There is not a room in this cottage that will hold ten couple. And where can the supper be? I immediately saw that there could be no difficulty in it. In it. So I said, my dear Lady Elliot, do not be uneasy. The dining parlor will admit 18 couple with ease. Card tables may be placed in the drawing room. The library may be open for tea and other refreshments. And let the supper be set out in the saloon. Lady Elliot was delighted with this thought. We measured the dining room and found it would hold exactly 18 couple. And the affair was arranged precisely after my plan. So that, in fact, you see, if people do but know how to set about it, every comfort may be as well enjoyed in a cottage as in the most spacious dwelling. What do you think Eleanor thinks about this? Eleanor agreed to it all, for she did not think he deserved the compliment of rational opposition. Great, Eleanor. As John Dashwood had no more pleasure in music than his eldest sister, his mind was equally at liberty to fix on anything else. And a thought struck him during the evening, which he communicated to his wife for her approbation when they got home. 
The consideration of Mrs. Dennison's mistake of thinking that um, Eleanor and Marianne were staying with them in supposing his sisters their guests had suggested the propriety of their being really invited to become such, while Mrs. Jennings' engagements kept her from home. The expense would be nothing, the inconvenience not more, and it was altogether an attention which the delicacy of his conscience pointed out to be requisite to its complete enfranchisement from his promise to his father. Finally, he has some good idea. Fanny was startled at the proposal. Remember their conversation at the very beginning of the novel that she manages to convince him not to leave any money at all to his sisters? Let's see how late, how um, how funny Dashwood is going to manage this situation. She was startled at the proposal. How can you think of such a thing? I do not see how it can be done, said she, without, without affronting Lady Middleton, for they spend every day with her. Otherwise, I should be exceedingly glad to do it. You know, I am always ready to pay them any attention in my power, as my taking them out this evening shows. <laughs> but they are Lady Middleton's visitors. How can I ask them away from her? Her husband, but with great humi humility, did not see the force of her objection. They had already spent a week in this manner in Conduit Street, and Lady Middleton could not be displeased at their giving the same number of days to such near relations. Fanny paused a moment, and then, with fresh vigor, said, My love, I would ask them with all my heart if it was in my power, but I had just settled within myself to ask the Miss Steeles to spend a few days with us. They are very well behaved, good kind of girls, and I think the attention is due to them as their uncle did so very well by Edward. We can ask your sisters some other year, you know, but the Miss Stills may not be in town anymore. I'm sure you will like them. Indeed, you do like them, you know, very much already, and so does my mother, and they are such favorites with Harry. Mr. Dashwood was convinced. She did it again. He saw the necessity of inviting the Mistils immediately, and his conscience was pacified by the resolution of inviting his sisters another year. Again, as always, his, his uh, conscience was pacified. At the same time, however, slyly suspecting that another year would make the invitation needless by bringing Eleanor to town as Colonel Brandon's wife and Marion as their visitor. Fanny, rejoicing in her escape, and proud of the ready wit that had procured it, wrote the next morning to Lucy to request her company and her sisters for some days in Harley Street, as soon as Lady Middleton could spare them. This was enough to make Lucy really and reasonably happy. Mrs. Nashwood seemed actually working for her herself, cherishing all her hopes and promoting all her views. Such an opportunity of being with Edward and his family was, above all things, the most material to her interest and such an invitation the most gratifying to her feelings. It was an advantage that could not be too gratefully acknowledged, nor too speedily made use of, and the visit to Lady Middleton, which had not before had any precise limits, was instantly discovered to have been always meant to end in two days' time. When the note was shown to Eleanor, as it was within ten minutes after its arrival, so she rushed to tell it to Eleanor, to hurt her, right? It gave her, for the first time, some share in the expectations of Lucy, 
for such a mark of uncommon kindness, vouchsafed on so short an acquaintance, seemed to declare that the goodwill towards her arose from something more than merely malice against herself, and might be brought by time and address to do everything that Lucy wished. Her flattery had already subdued the pride of Lady Middleton and made an entry into the close heart of Mrs. John Dashwood, and these were effects that laid open the probability of greater. So this is Lucy's superpower, right? The social power of flattery. She flatters her way through an upward society. For the first time, Eleanor is a bit afraid that that might actually work out. Lucy and Edward's engagement. The Miss Steels removed to Harley Street and all that reached Eleanor of their influence there strengthened her expectation of the event. Sir John, who called on them more than once, brought home such accounts of the favor they were in as must be universally striking. Mrs. Dashwood had never been so much pleased with any young women in her life as she was with them, had given each of them a needle book made by some immigrant, caught Lucy by her Christian name, and did not know whether she should ever be able to part with them. And that's the end of volume two. So unknowingly, Mrs. Dashwood makes the path easier for Lucy by inviting her to, to stay over and where she will most likely see Edward. Um, often, and not only Edward, but especially make her way, flatter her way in the family, make her um, a liked person so that they would approve of their engagement. And for the first time, Eleanor is a bit, it strikes her that, you know, this could actually happen. She could actually flatter herself into this family. Do you think it will work out? Lucy's plan to make herself so wanted, so desired, so amiable that they will accept her as a future wife for Edward Ferris. We'll see. Let's start uh, volume three, which is the last volume, and volume three, chapter one or chapter 37, which is the last chapter we are discussing today. So let's take a look. Jenny says, I think she could do it. Yes, she's very manipulative, right? And the way she's been playing with Eleanor, the way she's been manipulating everyone. She's a very, um, uh, she comes from a very simple family and she's made all her way through to becoming a guest, guest of honor in London's most fashionable homes. So she can do a lot. And that's what Eleanor is beginning to fear. So let's see. Chapter 1, Volume 3. Mrs. Palmer was so well at the end of fortnight that her mother felt it no longer necessary to give up the whole of her time to her, and contenting herself with visiting her once or twice a day, returned from that period to her own home and her own habits, in which she found the Miss Dashwoods were ready to reassume their former share. About the third or fourth morning after their being thus resettled in Berkeley Street, Mrs. Jennings, on returning from her ordinary visit to Mrs. Palmer, entered the drawing room where Eleanor was sitting by herself with an air of such hurrying importance as prepared her to hear something wonderful. And giving her time only to form that idea, began directly to justify it by saying, 
Lord, my dear Miss Dashwood, have you heard the news? So here comes Mrs. Jennings with some hot piece of gossip. No, ma'am, what is it? Something so strange, but you shall hear it all. When I got to Mr. Palmer's, I found Charlotte quite in a fuss about the child. She was sure it was very ill. It cried and fretted and was all over pimples. So I looked at it directly and, Lord, my dear, says I, it is nothing in the world but the red gum. And nurse said just the same. Uh, red gum, just for you to know what it is. A pimply skin eruption often associated with teething. But here, since the Palmer's child cannot be teething at only 18 days, it would be a sweat rash. But Mrs. Jennings says it's red gum and the nurse confirms. But Charlotte, she would not be so satisfied. So Mr. Donovan, the doctor, was sent for. And luckily he happened to be just coming from Harley Street. So he stepped over directly. He comes from Harley Street, so that means he's coming from where John and Fanny are staying. So he came from, from the Dashwoods' home. So there was a doctor in the Dashwoods' home. He stepped over directly, and as soon as ever he saw the child, he said, just as we did, that it was nothing in the world but the red gum. And even the doctor agrees. And then Charles was easy. And so just as he was going away, it came into my head. I'm sure I do not know how I happened to think of it. But it came into my head to ask him if there was any news. She always asks that. So how can she even um, wonder how that thought came into her head? So upon that, he smirked and simpered and looked grave and seemed to know something or other. And at last he said in a whisper, for fear, my for fear any unpleasant report should reach the young ladies under your care as to their sister's indisposition, I think it advisable to say that I believe there is no great reason for alarm. I hope Mrs. Dashwood will do very well. What? Is Fanny ill? That is exactly what I said, my dear. Lord, says I, is Mrs. Dashwood ill? So then it all came out, and the long and the short of the matter by all I can learn seems to be this. Mr. Edward Ferris, the very young man I used to joke with you about, but however, as it turns out, I am monstrous glad there never was anything in it. Mr. Edward Ferris, it seems, has been engaged above this 12 month to my cousin Lucy. There's for you, my dear, and not a creature knowing a syllable of the matter except Nancy. Could you have believed such a thing possible? There is no great wonder in their liking one another, but that matters should be brought so forward between them and nobody suspect it. That is strange. I never happened to see them together, or I'm sure I should have found it out directly. Well, and so this was kept a great secret for fear of Mrs. Ferris, and neither she nor your brother or sister suspected a word of the matter. Till this very morning, poor Nancy, who you know is a well-meaning creature, but no conjurer, popped it all out. So Nancy, Lucy's sister, just said it all. Lord, thinks she to herself, they are all so fond of Lucy to be sure they will make no difficulty about it. And so away she went to your sister, Fanny Dashwood, who was sitting all alone at her carpet work, little suspecting what was to come. For she had just been saying to your brother only five minutes before that she thought to make a match between Edward and some lord's daughter or other, I forget who. 
So you may think what a blow it was to all her vanity and pride. She fell into violent hysterics immediately with such screams as reached your brother's ears as he was sitting in his own dressing room downstairs, thinking about writing a letter to his steward in the country. So up he flew directly and a terrible scene took place for Lucy was come to them by that time, little dreaming what was going on. Poor soul, I pity her. And I must say, I think she was used very hardly, for your sister scolded like any fury and soon drove her into a fainting fit. Nancy, she fell upon her knees and cried bitterly, and your brother, he walked about the room and said he did not know what to do. Mrs. Nashwood declared they should not stay a minute longer in the house, and your brother was forced to go down upon his knees too to persuade her to let them stay still they had packed up their clothes. Then she fell into hysterics again, and he was so frightened that he would send for Mr. Donovan, the doctor, and Mr. Donovan found the house in all this uproar. The carriage was at the door, ready to take my poor cousins away, and they were just stepping in as he came off. Poor Lucy, in such a condition, he says, she could hardly walk. And Nancy, she was almost as bad. I declare I have no patience with your sister, and I hope with all my heart it will be a match in spite of her. Lord, what a taking poor Mr. Edward will be in when he hears of it. To have his love used so scornfully, for they say he's monstrous fond of her as well he may. I should not wonder if he was to be in the greatest of a passion. And Mr. Donovan thinks just the same. He and I had a great deal of talk about it. So she and the doctor were just gossiping. And the doctor should keep, what is it, the, the patient's code, the, the ethics code. He should not reveal anything about his patients. But he said it all, and uh, Mrs. Jennings loved every second of it. So they, they, they talked a great deal about it. And the best of it all is that He's gone back again to Harley Street, the doctor, that he may be within call when Mrs. Harris is told of it, for she was sent for as soon. Oh, yes, Jenny said so much for doctor, doctor's confidentiality. Yes, doctor-patient confidentiality. Yes, <laughs> he has known of that uh, concern, no ethics at all. And it, you can... Just assume he's not a very good doctor because of this. And also because he confirmed what Mrs. Jennings thought the baby had, uh, the gum fever or whatever. And that cannot happen before a baby is teething. And that, of course, is not happening when the baby is only 18 days old. Um, and what is best is that the doctor will go back to their house to wait for Mrs. Ferris' arrival because she will also most likely go into a fit of hysterics. So that means that the doctor will tell her everything. So Mrs. Jennings is happy. <laughs> for your sister was sure she would be in hysterics too. And so she may, for what I care. I have no pity for either of them. I have no notion of people's making such a to-do about money and greatness. There is no reason on earth why Mr. Edward and Lucy should not marry. For I am sure Mrs. Ferris may afford to do very well by her son, and though Lucy has next to nothing herself, she knows better than anybody how to make the most of everything. And I dare say, if Mrs. Ferris would only allow him 500 a year, she would make as good an appearance with it as anybody else would with eight. Lord, how snug they might live in such another cottage as yours, or a little bigger, with two maids and two men. 
and I believe I could help them to a housemate, for my Betty has a sister out of place that would fit them exactly. She's already conjecturing way, way into the future. Here, Mrs. Jennings ceased, and as Eleanor had had time enough to collect her thoughts, she was able to give such an answer and make such observations as the subject might naturally be supposed to produce. Happy to find that she was not suspected of any extraordinary interest in it, that Mrs. Jennings, as she had of late often hoped might be the case, had ceased to imagine her at all attached to Edward, and happy above all the rest in the absence of Marianne, she felt very well able to speak of the affair without embarrassment and to give her judgment, as she believed, with impartiality on the conduct of everyone concerned in it. She could hardly determine what her own expectation of its event really was, though she earnestly tried to drive away the notion of its being possible to end otherwise at last than in the marriage of Edward and Lucy. What Mrs. Ferris would say and do, those there could not be a doubt of its nature. She was anxious to hear, and still more anxious to know how Edward would conduct himself. For him, she felt much compassion. For Lucy, very little. And it cost her some pains to produce that little. For the rest of the party, not at all. As Mrs. Jennings could talk on no other subject, Eleanor soon saw the necessity of preparing Marianne for its discussion. No time was to be lost in undeceiving her, in making her acquainted with the real truth, and in endeavoring to bring her to hear it talked of by others, without betraying that she felt any uneasiness for her sister or any resentment against Edward. Eleanor's office was a painful one. She was going to remove what she really believed to be her sister's chief consolation. To give such particulars of Edward as she feared would ruin him forever in her good opinion. And to make Marianne, by a resemblance in their situations, which to her fancy would seem strong, feel all her own disappointment over again. But unwelcome as such a task must be, it was necessary to be done, and Eleanor therefore hastened to perform it. She was very far from wishing to dwell on her own feelings or to represent herself as suffering much, any otherwise than as the self-command she had practiced since her first knowledge of Edward's engagement might suggest a hint of what was practicable to Marian. Her narration was clear and simple, and though it could not be given without emotion, it was not accompanied by violent agitation nor impetuous grief. That belonged rather to the hearer, for Marianne listened with horror and cried excessively. Eleanor was to be the comforter of others in her own distresses, no less than in theirs, and all the comfort that could be given by assurances of her own composure of mind and a very earnest vindication of Edward from every charge but of imprudence was readily offered. But Marianne for some time would give credit to neither. Edward seemed a second Willoughby, and acknowledging as Eleanor did that she had loved him most sincerely, could she feel less than herself? As for Lucy Steele, she considered her so totally unamiable, so absolutely incapable of attaching a sensible man, that she could not be persuaded at first to believe, and afterwards to pardon any former affection of Edward for her. She would not even admit it to have been natural, and Eleanor left her to be convinced that it was so, by that which only could convince her a better knowledge of mankind. Her first communication had reached no farther than to state the fact of the engagement and the length of time it existed. 
Marion's feelings had then broken in and put an end to all regularity of detail. And for some time, all that could be done was to soothe her distress, lessen her alarms, and combat her resentment. The first question on her side, which led to farther particulars, was, How long has this been known to you, Eleanor? Has he written to you? I have known it this four months. When Lucy first came to Barton Park last November, she told me in confidence of her engagement. At these words, Marion's eyes expressed the astonishment which her lips could not utter. After a pause of wonder, she exclaimed, Four months! Have you known of this four months? Eleanor confirmed it. What, while attending me in all my misery, has this been on your heart? And I have reproached you for being happy. It was not fit that you should then know how much I was the reverse. Four months, cried Marian again, so calm, so cheerful. How have you been supported? By feeling that I was doing my duty. Duty is an important word for Mary, for Eleanor and for Edward. My promise to Lucy obliged me to be secret. I owed it to her, therefore, to avoid giving any hint of the truth. And I owed it to my family and friends not to create in them a solicitude about me, which it could not be in my power to satisfy it. Marianne seemed much struck. I have very often wished to undeceive yourself and my mother, added Eleanor, and once or twice I have attempted it, but without betraying my trust, I never could have convinced you. Four months, and yet you loved him. Yes, but I did not I did not love only him. And while the comfort of others was dear to me, I was glad to spare them from knowing how much I felt. So yes, she loved Edward, but she loved not only him, she also loved her sister. Marian and her mother, so she had to compose, exert herself, so then she would not make others suffer because of her. That's very Eleanor and very beautiful what she does, right? To avoid the pain in others. Now I can think and speak of it with little emotion. I would not have you suffer on my account, for I assure you I no longer suffer materially myself. I have many things to support me. I'm not conscious of having provoked the disappointment by any imprudence of my own, and I have borne it as much as possible without spreading it farther. I acquit Edward of all essential misconduct. I wish him very happy, and I'm so sure of his always doing his duty that though now he may harbor some regret, in the end he must become so. Lucy does not want sense, and that is the foundation on which every good thing on everything good may be built. And after all, Marianne, after all that is bewitching in the idea of a single and constant attachment, and all that can be said of one's happiness depending entirely on any particular person, it is not meant, it is not fit, it is not possible that it should be so. Edward will marry Lucy. He will marry a woman superior in person and understanding to have her sex, and time and habit will teach him to forget that he ever thought another superior to her. If such is your way of thinking, said Marianne, if the loss of what is most valued is so easily to be made up by something else, your resolution, your self-command are perhaps a little less to be wondered at. They are brought more within my comprehension. I understand you. You do not suppose that I have ever felt much. 
For four months, Marian, I have had all this hanging on my head, without being at liberty to speak of it to a single creature, knowing that it would make you and my mother most unhappy whenever it were explained to you, yet unable to prepare you for it in the least. It was told to me, it was in a manner, in a manner forced on me by the very person herself, whose prior engagement ruined all my prospects, and told me, as I thought, with triumph. And that is true. Uh, Lucy forced this knowledge onto Eleanor as a triumph. I have, Edward, you don't. This person's suspicions, therefore, I have had to oppose by endeavoring to appear indifferent where I have been most deeply interested. And it has not been only once. I have had her hopes and exultation to listen to again and again. I have known myself to be divided from Edward forever, without hearing one circumstance that could make me less desire the connection. Nothing has proved him unworthy, nor has anything declared him indifferent to me. I have had to contend against the unkindness of his sister and the insolence of his mother, and have suffered the punishment of an attachment without enjoying its advantages. And all this has been going on at a time when, as you too well know, it has not been my only unhappiness. If you can think me capable of ever feeling, surely you may suppose that I have suffered now. The composure of mind with which I have brought myself at present to consider the matter, the consolation that I have been willing to admit, have been the effect of constant and painful exertion. They did not spring up of themselves. They did not occur to relieve my spirits at first. No, Marianne. Then, if I had not been bound to silence, perhaps nothing could have kept me entirely, not even what I owed to my dearest friends, from openly showing that I was very unhappy. Wow, see how she opens up, she finally opens up to her sister and how much she has suffered. And Marion was so, let's say, selfish, so concerned with her own suffering that she did not realize that the person that is closest to her, her sister, was suffering a lot as well. Marianne was quite subdued. Oh, Eleanor, she cried, you have made me hate myself forever. How barbarous have I been to you. You, who have been my only comfort, who have borne with me in all my misery, who have seemed to be only suffering for me, is this my gratitude? Is this the only return I can make you? Because your merit cries out upon myself, I have been trying to do it away. The tenderest caresses followed this confession. In such a frame of mind as she was now in, Elnor had no difficulty in obtaining from her whatever promise she required. And at her request, Marian engaged never to speak of the affair to anyone with the least appearance of bitterness to meet Lucy without betraying the smallest increase of dislike to her, and even to see Edward himself, if chance should bring them together, without any diminution of her usual cordiality. These were great concessions, especially for Marianne. But where Marianne felt that she had injured, no reparation could be too much for her to make. She performed her promise of being discreet to admiration. She attended to all that Mrs. Jennings had to say upon the subject, with an unchanging complexion, dissented from her in nothing, and was heard three times to say, yes, ma'am. She listened to her praise of Lucy with only moving from one chair to another, and when Mrs. Jennings talked of Edward's affection, it caused her only a spasm in her throat. 
Such advances towards heroism in her sister made Eleanor feel equal to anything herself. Their connection is so beautiful, right? It's so strong. So um, Eleanor realizes how much of an effort uh, Marianne is doing. She calls it even heroism in her sister. And that makes her feel like she's capable of doing anything as well. So they help each other, they support each other in their heartbreaks. The next morning brought a farther trial of it in a visit from their brother, who came with the most serious aspect to talk over the dreadful affair and bring them news of his wife. You have heard, I suppose, said he with great solemnity as soon as he was seated, of the very shocking discovery that took place under our roof yesterday. They all looked their assent. It seemed too awful a moment for speech. Your sister, he continued, has suffered dreadfully. And he means Fanny Dashwood. Mrs. Ferris, too. In short, it has been a scene of such complicated distress. But I will hope that the storm may be weathered without our being any of us quite overcome. Poor Fanny. She was in hysterics all yesterday. But I would not alarm you too much. Donovan says there is nothing materially to be apprehended. Her constitution is a good one and her resolution equal to anything. She has borne it all with the fortitude of an angel. Fortitude of an angel. What? How is it her business? <laughs> right? They don't think about Edward's feelings or Lucy's feelings, but how angelically uh, Fanny Dashwood has... Um, born it all. She says she never shall think well of anybody again, and one cannot wonder at it after being so deceived. Meeting with such ingratitude, where so much kindness had been shown, so much confidence had been placed. It was quite out of the benevolence of her heart that she had asked these young women to her house, merely because she thought they deserved some attention, were harmless, well-behaved girls, and would be pleasant companions, for otherwise we both wished very much to have invited you and Marianne to be with us, while your kind friend there was attending her daughter. And now to be so rewarded? I wish with all my heart, says poor Fanny in her affectionate way, that we had asked your sisters instead of them. Aha, uh -huh, finally, 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 she wishes. She regrets not having... Uh, asked Eleanor and Marion instead. Here he stopped to be thanked, <laughs> which being done, he went on. What poor Mrs. Ferris suffered when first Fanny broke it to her is not to be described. While she, with the truest affection, had been planning a most eligible connection for him, was it to be supposed that he could be all the time secretly engaged to another person? Such a suspicion could never have entered her head. If she suspected any prepossession elsewhere, it could not be in that quarter. It would have been in Eleanor's quarter. There, to be sure, said she, I might have thought myself safe. She was quite in an agony. We consulted together, however, as to what should be done. And at last she determined to send for Edward. He came. But I am sorry to relate what ensued. All that Mrs. Ferris could say to make him put an end to the engagement, assisted too, as you may well suppose, by my arguments and Fanny's entreaties, was of no avail. Duty, affection, everything was disregarded. I never thought Edward so stubborn, so unfeeling before. 
His mother explained to him his, her liberal designs in case of his marrying Miss Morton, told him she would settled on, settle on him the Norfolk state, which clear of land task, land tax brings in a good thousand a year, offered even when matters grew desperate to make it 1200. And in opposition to this, if he still persisted in this low connection, represented to him the certain penury that must attend the match. His own 2,000 pounds, she protested, should be his all. He would never, she would never see him again, and so far would she be from affording him the smallest assistance that if he were to enter into any profession with a view of better support, she would do all in her power to prevent his advancing in it. So she would ruin his life if he carried on with the resolution to marry Lucy. She would not give him any money, any assistance, and on top of everything, would do everything in her power to prevent him advancing in any profession. Here, Marianne, in an ecstasy of indignation, clapped her hands together and cried, Gracious God, can this be possible? Well, may you wonder, Marianne, replied her brother, at the obstinacy which could resist such arguments as these. Your exclamation is very natural. Marianne was going to retort, but she remembered her promises and forbore. All this, however, he continued, was urged in vain. Edward said very little, but what he did say was in the most determined manner. Nothing should prevail on him to give up his engagement. He would stand to it, cost him what it might. Then, cried Mrs. Jennings with blunt sincerity, no longer able to be silent, he has acted like an honest man. I beg your pardon, Mr. Dashwood, but if he had done otherwise, I should have thought him a rascal. I have some little concern in the business as well as yourself, for Lucy Steele is my cousin, and I believe there is not a better kind of girl in the world, nor one who more deserves a good husband. Mrs. Jennings says that if Edward had done otherwise, he should have, she should have thought him a rascal. In other words, if he had done what Willoughby did to Marianne. He, she would think him a rascal. But he keeps his word, so she thinks he acted like an honest man. John Dashwood was greatly astonished, but his nature was calm, not open to provocation, and he never wished to offend anybody, especially anybody of good fortune. He therefore replied without any resentment. I would by no means speak disrespectfully of any relation of yours, madam, Miss Lucy Steele is, I dare say, a very deserving young woman, but in the present case, you know, the connection must be impossible. And to have entered into a secret engagement with a young man under her uncle's care, the son of a woman specially of such very large fortune as Mrs. Ferris, is perhaps altogether a little extraordinary. In short, I do not mean to reflect upon the behavior of any person whom you have a regard for, Mrs. Jennings. We all wish her extremely happy. And Mrs. Ferris' conduct throughout the whole has been such as every conscientious good mother in like circumstances would adopt. It has been dignified and liberal. Edward has drawn his own lot, and I fear it will be a bad one. Marian sighed out her similar apprehension, and Eleanor's heart wrung for the feelings of Edward, while braving his mother's threats for a woman who could not reward him. Well, sir, said Mrs. Jennings, and how did it end? I'm sorry to say, ma'am, in a most unhappy rupture. Edward is dismissed forever from his mother's notice. 
He left her house yesterday, but where he's gone or whether he's still in town, I do not know, for we, of course, can make no inquiry. Poor young man, and what is to become of him? What indeed, ma'am, it is a melancholy consideration. Born to the prospect of such affluence, I cannot conceive a situation more deplorable. The interest of two thousand pounds, how can a man live on it? And when to that is added the recollection that he might, but for his own folly, within three months have been in the receipt of two thousand five hundred a year, for Miss Morton has thirty thousand pounds. I cannot picture to myself a more wretched condition. We must all feel for him, and the more so because it is totally out of our power to assist him. Is it? Poor young man, cried Mrs. Jennings. I'm sure he should be very welcome to bed and board at my house, and so I would tell him if I could see him. It is not fit that, that he should be living about at his own charge now at lodgings and taverns. Eleanor's heart thanked her for such kindness towards Edward, though she could not forbear smiling at the form of it. If he would only have done as well by himself, said John Dashwood, as all his friends were disposed to do by him, he might now have been in his proper situation and would have wanted for nothing. But as it is, it must be out of anybody's power to assist him. And there is one thing more preparing against him, which must be worse than all. His mother has determined, with a very natural kind of spirit, to settle that estate upon Robert immediately, which might have been Edward's on proper conditions. I left her this morning with her lawyer, talking over the business. Well, said Mrs. Jennings, that is her revenge. Everybody has a way of their own, but I don't think mine would be to make one son independent because another had plagued me. Marian got up and walked about the room. Can anything be more galling to the spirit of a man, continued John, than to see his younger brother in possession of an estate which might have been his own? Poor Edward, I feel for him sincerely. A few minutes more spent in the same kind of effusion concluded his visit, and with repeated assurances to his sisters that he really believed there was no material danger in Fanny's indisposition, and that they need not therefore be very uneasy about it, he went away leaving the three ladies anonymous in their sentiments on the present occasion, as far at least as it regarded Mrs. Ferris' conduct, the Dashwoods and Edwards. Marianne's indignation burst forth as soon as he quitted the room, and as her vehemence made reserve impossible in Eleanor and unnecessary in Mrs. Jennings, they all joined in a very spirited critique upon the party. And that is the end of chapter 1, volume 3, or chapter 37. So the truth is out about Eleanor's about sorry about Edward's secret attachment to Lucy and because of that Mrs. Ferris has expelled him from her home and threatened him to cut all his money and on top of that to bestow everything to her other son Robert Ferris if he goes on uh, if he keeps this engagement but we know that Edward is a man of word a man of honor that men of duty and we can pretty can be pretty sure that he will not break this engagement regardless of how much money he would lose right jenny says great session today such a lot has happened in the story yes the story is moving faster now um it is um a very interesting chapter this last one where 
everything comes out in the open. So next time we are going to talk about chapters um, 38 to 41, 38, 39, 40, 41. And remember, if you want to know more about Jane Austen, her world, her writing career, her life, you should sign up for the online course, the Jane Austen Club, and you can do so via the website booksandculture.club. I hope you enjoyed. If you do take the course, let me know what you think of it, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye. So here we are. I hope you've enjoyed this 10th session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I will be uploading the sessions as audio-only documents in this podcast in the upcoming weeks. Next time, we'll read and discuss chapters 38 to 41. And remember, if you want to know more about Jane Austen, her world and literary career, sign up for the online course, The Jane Austen Club, on the website booksandculture.club. Stay tuned and until the next stop in our journey through English literature.